The Home Show with Sinead Ryan. With Daikin on News Talk. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of The Home Show podcast with me, Sinead Ryan. Coming up this week, we're kicking off a brand new series looking at famous homes used in the movies. This week, the house featured is Father of the Bride. I'll be joined by urban forester and journalist Catherine Cleary, who is building a native forest in County Roscommon. We'll speak to two architects improving community spaces. And Jennifer Sheehan has broken her leg. Don't worry, she'll be in studio and she is talking about integrating mobility aids at home. If you'd like to get involved in the show, you can email us at any stage during the week uh, at thehomeshowatnewstalk.com. I'm over on Instagram at Sinead Ryan 100 and we'd love uh, to hear from you. And you're very welcome along to this episode. Um, there weren't many good news stories from the COVID era. But one of the positives, I think, of the continuing lockdowns and job losses was that it polarised some people into making a big change in their lives that they wouldn't have uh, done before or without that. Uh, Whether it was moving to the countryside or changing career or finally ditching the day job for many, it proved the catalyst they needed to live in a different way. So I'm really looking forward to chatting a little bit later on with food critic turned forester Catherine Cleary, who didn't need COVID as an excuse, uh, but gave her life an about turn because of it. Do stay tuned. It's a fascinating story. But if you have one yourself, I'd love to hear it. Are you a solicitor who became a surfer or maybe a barber who opened a and b What changes have the last few years now that we're on the other side of it more or less uh, brought on you. You can text us here 53106 that'll cost you 30 cent or the email at thehomeshow at newstalk.com You're very welcome along. Now we're kicking off a new series on The Home Show uh, for the next few months taking a look at houses that feature in the movies. Uh, The recent sale of the Brady Bunch house for those of a certain age now they'll know the one I'm talking about it went for $3.2 million recently and it got us thinking about famous real houses that feature in films who lives in them what's their history and are they visited by hordes of tourists. Well this week uh, we're starting off with the home featured on the film Father of the Bride and uh, Uh, To this day, it remains one of the most searched for film houses on the internet. So I'm joined now by Brian Lloyd of entertainment.ie, the movie editor. You're very welcome to the home show, Brian. Now, before we get started, let's take a clip from the movie. Wedding coordinator? What's a wedding coordinator? We're going to colour coordinate with the swans, right? Swans? I have a great idea where we can have this wedding. Where? The steak pit. I don't think you want the word pit on wedding invitation. <laughs> so that was a clip with Steve Martin and it was such a great movie, Brian. It, it just had everything, didn't it? It was yeah. just fun. It is, yeah. And I think a lot of like uh, Nancy Myers, the director of it as well, like you look at any of her films, she just really does have a good eye, I think, for interior design and all the rest of it. And in fact, even some of her films as well, she's actually made interior design an actual central part of the film. Like there was a film... Uh, it's complicated if you saw mm. that with yeah Meryl, Meryl Streep, Streep and Alec Baldwin. That's yeah. right. And the whole kind of centerpiece of the film is is that Steve Martin is an architect and she's getting her kitchen done up yeah, and all the rest yeah, of it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, well, we might cover that at a later stage. We'll cover that stage. one at a later okay. stage. But yeah. yeah, with Father of the Bride, I mean, it's a gorgeous house. Like, and it's really one of those houses that 
I mean, like most houses are, you know, in films are real houses. Like, mm. sure, the interiors or whatever might be copies or might be kind of sound Sex. stages or yeah, whatever. Yeah. But the outside of it, the exterior shots, they are real. And Father of the Bride is one of those houses that in the film you see it through the course of the year or the course of seasons and what have you. So you really do see it like in autumn and spring and winter and all the rest of it. Um, but yeah, it's a beautiful house. It was sold recently, I think, for like 1.198 million. Okay. And a lot of these houses do generally fetch those kind of figures. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And this was a kind of a, a colonial rebuild, picket yeah. fence, white clabbered house. I mean, it really is gorgeous. So give us a little description of, of uh, what it, what it's like, because a lot of the filming was actually done inside this house. It was indeed. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. So it was what they call, the Americans called the colonial revival house. It was in Pasadena, California. Um, the backyard apparently wasn't up to Paris that so they had to find another house in a place called Alhambra um, which had this big basketball court Oh for the famous scene with yeah. father and daughter shooting hoops Shooting the hoops yeah. and all the rest of it Yeah exactly and that was the house that was sold and the the hoop is still there as well as far as far back as 2005 It was also used actually in another film as well uh, There was a film called Guess Who which was like a remake of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner Oh Okay, yeah, Ashton, Ashton Kutcher, Kutcher. Oh, yeah, yeah. Bernie yeah. Mac, yeah. Okay, but yeah, I mean, it is closely associated with Father of the Bride, and yeah, apparently you still do find people turning up at it to take pictures oh, on the right. doorstep and all the rest. Okay, of it, and of so. course, famously, they held the wedding in the in the the backyard movie in the house itself. Yeah, with Frank Martin Short, brilliant, yeah. brilliant He Frank, was yeah. fantastic, and uh, you'd remember, of course, the swans in the bath yeah. from the clip there, uh, and they had. Um, the staircase going up and, you know, these polished floors and it's all you can remember are these teams of the people details. arriving with yeah. flowers and cakes and poor old uh, uh, Steve, Martin, Steve going, Martin is thinking how much is this all the, My favourite, The thing I always remember about that film is when he's going through the supermarket tearing up the the hot dogs and all the rest of it because he's like wearing like the his old uh, wedding suit and all the rest of it tearing up. But yeah, like I do think like a lot of those films like and we're going to be talking about it I guess in later on series but like, you know, like the money paid Home Alone, those colonial revival houses are really closely associated with and films. Like, why do you think that is? Is it because that's the American nostalgia? That's the kind of the personification. The house nearly becomes a character in the movie. Definitely, yeah. And even you notice it as well. Even in like horror films, like you know, like Amityville Horror or Halloween, mm. it's kind of an inversion of that. Mm. Insofar as it's like, you know. American films do tend to make these these films, uh, you know, the houses are big and beautiful and there's the white picket fences and it's almost kind of a caricature of itself. So then when you look at it in a horror film, it's an inversion of that as in the house is no longer safe. That's not the case, obviously, in Father of the Bride. It's still a beautiful, warm house, like the big sweeping staircase and all the rest of it. And it's interesting as well, like you'd find a lot of people now are certainly trying to not ape it but they're taking inspiration from it like I mean I know people that have looked at looked at films and looked at the houses and been like yeah I want to get something kind of like that going on obviously yeah, not to that a, American scale an aspirational yeah, look completely. about them and maybe people watch these movies and you know you can tell something about maybe the character's affluence or, yeah of course yeah, yeah or, or something about the family from this definitely yeah 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 I mean in, in the case of like Father of the Bride you know he's like re, you know reasonably middle class upper middle class Um. And again, like the same again in Home Alone as well. That's another mm. example mm. of it. These big, beautiful, uh, mm. long houses. And then again, 
you know, in something like when Harry met Sally, for example, like, you know, their apartments are quite small, a little bit pokey, but still have mm. that kind of real New York mm. feel. You know? Now, of course, all these film sets and they use this house again for the sequel. Uh, yeah. where of course they had to build a nursery because right. <laughs> Frank was now in charge of organising the nursery yeah, yeah. You know, another million quid uh, dollars being spent on it there um, do, uh, tell me about the role of the location scout yeah. in in movies I mean it's really it, it's not just looking at, at countries and uh, streetscapes but actually finding homes that can be used completely yeah so a location scout is basically responsible for finding a house and the, or finding an environment that they can shoot in they have to work with the homeowners as well, but then they actually have to see if the house is actually up to scratch, as in can they actually fit. Like, you know, a film set will have anything up to 40 people on it between, mm. you know, lighting people, riggers, electricians, personal assistants, makeup artists, you name it. I mean, yeah, they can bring all the trailers they want, but they're all going to have to squeeze into that house. And for a film like Father of the Bride, which was a big studio film, there could be anything up to 70 people in it. Wow. So the house has yeah. to be able to fit all those people. That's what the location scale will do. Now, not to break the illusion of cinema and all the rest of it, but you do often find that what will happen is is they'll go to one of these houses, they'll go inside, they'll take pictures of everything, and then they'll replicate it on a soundstage. That's certainly what happened in The Sopranos. Like, the pilot episode was shot in the real house in New Jersey. But when they got picked up for a series, they went away mm. and made a soundstage mm. and they copied it exactly Looked from... exactly like it. Yeah, uh, and you, I mean, how house. many movies are made, you know, that are set in the West Wing at the White House? Yeah. I mean, you know, they're they not actually the one, yeah, filming yeah, of course, in yeah. the Oval Office. Yeah, it's the one Oval know. Office set that's been used countless times like, yeah, from yeah, yeah. the West Wing right up to... The American President. American to, President yeah, yeah, and yeah. all the rest of it, yeah. All right. So, um, in, so in deciding the house then, of course, they have to be mindful of neighbours and mm. all of that. And of course you know, dicking it up the way they wanted for the movie and then having to restore it back afterwards. Uh, we did have a, a movie scout on with us, like a home locator, um, a few months ago uh, mm. on the home show. I must look back and see which episode it was and give it a shout out in case anybody wants to listen to it. Um, but when tourists or fans mm. turn up at those houses... Like, do they go and look in the windows and, and yeah. think maybe that's what they're going to see there? That's Steve it. Martin walking Yeah, past. yeah, walking out, yeah, leaving, it, leaving, out the, leaving out the garbage or whatever. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, I know for a fact that uh, in New Mexico, in Albuquerque, the house that was used in Breaking Bad, it got that bad of, you know, tourists coming up to see the house and what have you, that they were walking right into it, that they actually had to gate the entire community to keep people out. Gosh. And there was people even throwing pizza boxes up on top of the thing, like the film as well. Now, in the case of something like the Brady Bunch film, as you mentioned at the top of this, they do become tourist attractions, mm. you know, that sort of mm. way. And people buy it for that. Yeah, that it's sold factor, for like, whatever I said, three million. But yeah. actually, I read somewhere that the Brady Bunch house, which is this, you know, typical 1956 post-war large lot. Kind of like Frank Lloyd Wright almost kind of thing. Absolutely yeah. beautiful. Uh, when you go into that, of course, you've this whole retro thing going on, mm. but they never, ever use the inside of the house yeah, that's right. for the series. Yeah. Uh, and apparently the buyers, I don't know how this happens. Somebody spends $3 million on a house and, and then, then looks and says, oh, that's not what I thought it was going to be like. I mean, uh, it, you know, because the soundstage gives you better quality. Oh, yeah, of course. And, yeah. and if you're going to have a long running series or a movie, 
like it's not a big investment. No, not in the, not at all. And like that's the thing with those TV shows; they have to be made as cheaply as possible. They have to have control of it. They've got to be able to shoot multiple episodes. They've got to be able to get the lighting right, and there has to be a central environment. And then, like for the likes of the Brady Bunch, or even for something like Cheers, they have to bring in an audience as well. Yeah. So there has to be a place for mm, everyone to sit. Yeah. But um, yeah, no. And generally speaking, what you do find is is that if it's if the exterior of the the exterior of the building, the interior is completely different. But like, I mean, yeah, it's completely unrealistic. Yeah. Like so, yeah. Oh, we we don't care. No, no, don't, of course don't, no. Don't like, burst I mean, our bubble no. there. Not at all, yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, listen, Brian, you're going to come back to us, I hope, and talk about other um, movies in the coming weeks and uh, houses that made it. Uh, so, folks, if you have any you'd like to suggest, actually, for Brian to go off and research your favorite movie, the favorite house, and the favorite, the one you thought. Gosh, I'd love to live there. Uh, let us know, 53106, or email us at thehomeshow at newstalk.com. And who knows, Brian uh, will incorporate it in one of his future items. Uh, Brian, thanks a million. Brian Lloyd, a movies editor with entertainment.ie. Now, my next guest, Catherine Cleary, is a freelance journalist and an urban forester. She and her husband, Liam, purchased land the size of Stevens Green in, in County Roscommon and alongside forester Bernard Kiernan. Uh, they're currently building a native forest on the land and she joins me now. Catherine, you're very welcome along to The Home Show. Tell us a little bit about what you are creating in County Roscommon. Then I'll ask you why you're doing it, but let's start with what yeah. you're doing. A good question, and then I have another question: Are we creating it, or is Mother Nature creating it? <laughs> okay. So obviously, Mother Nature is probably the big creator here, and we're just um, we're helping. We're 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 getting a start in there. Um, so yeah, like you say, we bought we bought some land. Um, we saw it about three years ago this month, and and actually bought it two years ago um, in Roscommon. It was land that was what it wasn't in one single plot, so uh, you know it wasn't very appealing for people to buy as a single farm. Um, and it was, as I said in the piece, the cheapest land that we could find because what we wanted to do was, and Bernard uh, Kiernan, our forester, would look at land before we did really to assess it for suitability to plant a native forest. Um, I was kind of inspired many years ago by the Millennium Tree Project. I don't know if you remember that one every household. I do. My my yeah. tree is in County Kilkenny. I've never visited yeah. it, but over yeah. the years, like lots of people, I said, oh, someday I'll go down and t- bring my certificate with me and find my tree. And find your tree. Yeah, and just for <laughs> listeners who don't know what that is, uh, the government around the turn of the millennium uh, decided to plant a tree in every citizen's name. Isn't that right, Catherine? That's right. Every household got a native tree yeah. and, and you had a certificate. So like that, about 10 years afterwards, I rang up Declan Little, the journalist, and said, could I come and meet my tree? And Declan <laughs> said gently, uh, well, it's not quite, a, you know, because there there isn't probably a tree that's assigned that certificate number, not to disappoint you. Oh, but it is a, wo- it's a woodland okay. uh, because some of the trees will have, uh, you know, will will have shaded others out. Uh, but anyway, I became fascinated. Declan is another wonderful, I mean, he's probably the leading expert on native woodlands in the country. And I kind of had a, a link to that idea of woodlands, sort of a yearning for it. And then when COVID hit, um, the yearning became more, much more urgent for both me and my husband, who both grew up in rural Ireland and ran to cities as soon as we could, I suppose. But we just wanted to, um, we wanted to give something back to the land, I think, and give something back to nature and make something that wasn't really for us. I mean, we can we can enjoy it, we can visit it, we can camp in it. Um, you know, hopefully we can learn from it in a big way over the next few years and next few decades. But um, there is a scheme now. And as we were doing this, actually, the scheme 
was was um, it was approved by the European Commission now. So there is more money for landowners or farmers to plant. Yeah, this is the um, European Commission forestry programme, and they've set aside mm. what about one point three billion euros, mm. and and this is to support. Um, farmers like you who have decided to turn their land into forestry uh, and and in terms of like an annual stipend, is that the way it works? That's right. The premiums are increased. So for farmers, they get 20 years of payments and it's it's over a thousand euro per hectare. So it's mm. quite a generous payment. You know, when you look at average farm incomes, most farmers, many, many beef farmers, especially are part time farmers. So there's the equivalent income to be made from a native woodland. The question then at the end of that premium time is how do you continue to make an income from that land? Mm. And I think in that time that we will have changed the way we deal with forests. We won't be cutting them all down like we do currently with um, monoculture Sitka spruce where, you know, it's a clear fell operation. It's a crop almost. Everything is cut in one mm. go. Mm. Um, there will be all kinds of new models to to be able to extract timber from forests that are still there, that those forests continue to be a resource. And we need these forests to sequester carbon. We need them to provide habitat for wildlife. So there can be, the hope is that there will be payments for ecosystem services. The term people, you know, it's a very technical term, but just for the good that these forests are doing for Mm, us, mm. um, that there will be payment to the landowner and the farmer for doing that. And of course, these are long-term projects because, I mean, a tree you know, some grow quickly, some don't, but you're not looking at anything that's going to yield um, a monetized product uh, for, for some years. So it's the fact of having it there is really the value in it. Catherine, it I, I, I read your article, right, which was excellent and, and people can go and find that in the Irish Times, but uh, it struck me and, and, you know, forgive me if, if I'm not, uh, if I got this wrong, but it struck me that um, this at some stage you thought maybe you'd bitten off more than you could chew when it came to actually having the trees arriving and planting them. How many trees have you fit? Have you fitted in the space that you have? Yeah, so the space that we have is it's a little bit larger than Stevens Green to give people a sense of it. Um, it's just over 27 acres. Stevens Green, I think, is about 22 acres. Um, and in that, we've fitted 24,000 trees. So these are not trees that you would, you know, tall trees, but they're very small saplings, one or two-year-old saplings, um, all of them native trees. But that's a hell of a lot of trees to plant in a small time frame. Mm. And we were kind of at the end of the planting season when the trees arrived. There was a wait for contractors. We had to have the area fenced and an excavator had to go through and, and lift a sod for the tree to be planted into because it's very heavy ground, very difficult ground to work on. Um so all of that meant that we threw ourselves, family, <laughs> cousins, you know, it was around about Easter time in April when we started um, and everybody was handed a spade and a bunch of trees and said, please go plant those in a line. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we did our best and we actually managed with Bernard's help as well, we managed to plant about 6,000 trees, which, which is brilliant and, and incredibly satisfying, but also backbreaking. Um, but then the planting team arrived and they were just in such a skilled um, no, seven men who planted, you know, 18,000 trees wow. in about six, six hours wow. between them. So. Because there's no easy way to do that. I mean, you, you no. want them in certain places in a certain fashion, I, I presume. Yeah. And, and you can't, you know, there's only so much you can mechanise. Absolutely. It is handwork. There are, you know, there, there, is some, there is some machinery that can be used. But this is something that, again, if we're going to increase our forest cover across the country, we're going to need to train lots more people. We're going to need to make forestry a very satisfying and probably a better paid job because it's very low paid work mm. at the moment. 
um, you know, the, the forester was saying that this team of, of planters is actually just, you know, they're doing most of the planting in the country at the moment, and that's not sustainable. So, you know, that has to that has to improve. Even, you know, a, a, a sort of um, work experience scenario where people are trained and they, you know, they train in forestry and they, they plant at the start or they manage small young forests at the start as part of their training would be hugely helpful. And having large numbers of people seeing it as a career that they would really enjoy and get something from, I think is going to be essential to get mm. it to the, the, you know, we're at about 11% tree cover at the moment. We need to get to about 30%, which is the average right. European, you know, we've got we've got very few trees compared to other European countries. And, and it's so surprising to hear that because, you know, you take any drive anywhere in the country and all you can mm-hmm. see are fields and trees, but, but it's just not... Uh, reaching the heights and I know certainly the Scandinavian countries have, have uh, great tree canopies and, and they've done a, you know they're far further along this path than we are. Now of course yeah. Catherine people will know you primarily as the former restaurant critic uh, for the Irish Times so it's a bit of a left turn uh, in terms <laughs> of your career. I do hope you're eating well and still <laughs> having a visiting nice restaurant. Eating like a horse today that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and separately to the to the rural project, um, I set up a social enterprise with my brilliant friend Ash Conrad Jones called Pocket Forest. So we're planting these native forests in small urban areas to try and bring native trees and shrubs into people's lives, really, because we don't want them just to be these remote ideas that people don't really get to see or experience. And, and they're so, very beautiful. Yeah, very and good. some of those pocket forests, uh, which, which you can find on, on your website, which is pocketforest.ie, uh, they're like they're in very very small spaces. You 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 say that you can fit one in in a car parking space. We can, yeah, yeah. And and, and there's no car park there as well, which is also a good <laughs> climate gain. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> so if anybody was following suit and and thought actually that's a super idea, I have a bit of land or I want to buy a bit of land and and create forest, especially with the support of this new EC fund. What would you advise them to do? What, what um, mistakes did you make that you'd ask them to avoid? Yeah. yeah, make sure that your planting team and your excavators are all there. You know, and, and it's a bit like a bill. You know, you're you're reliant on other people to make it happen. But the first step for any farmer or landowner is to to look at the Department of Agriculture website for a list mm. of registered foresters, and you'll find a registered forester or a forestry company in your area. And they will advise you and they are the absolute experts on whether your land is suitable, because if your land has, say, you know, some archaeological remains on it, uh, other there are other issues around habitats, there are protected habitats which mm. can't be planted. So your forester will be able to tell from a desktop search, you know, what, mm. what the potential of the land is. And again, they spell out very clearly what the different uh, combinations of forests that are available and how the income might work on that. And, uh, you know, it, it will hopefully mean that, that a lot of people will do this. Um, and and there's a great Chinese saying, you know, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago and the second best time is now. And I think we really are in the second best time now for forests to establish our forests and just fall in love with our forest culture again because it's, you know, it's in us, it's in our bones. We feel safe in, in these environments because we're very connected to them. Um, and, you know, we can get so many benefits. We can turn around so many problems. There are so many fixes. And also for farmers, um, it's not like losing your land to trees. There's a wonderful organisation, the Irish Agroforestry Forum, that I do some work with as well. And they're explaining to farmers how to plant wide space trees, which are protected, and you can still have grazing or you can grow crops between these trees. But they add 
again, incredible benefits to your farming mm-hmm. system and reduce your input costs. So, you know, trees are um, magic, really. And I can't, I can't say <laughs> too much about them. <laughs> well, it sounds that, that they are in very good hands in County Roscommon. Catherine Cleary, urban forester and founder of Pocket Forests. Uh, thanks for joining us on The Home Show. The 2024 Hometown Architect project will be open for submissions in November. Now, this is supported by the Irish Architecture Foundation uh, and it's uh, selecting five architects with funding uh, to create uh, a community space or to better a community space uh, by somebody who has a local connection to the area and it's part of the government's Town Centre First policy. Well, joining me now on the line are two architects who were successful last year in the bidding uh, and they're going to chat to me about the type of projects uh, that they undertook. Uh, Mark Ruddy uh, was uh, organising a project in Belmullet and Kate Strain uh, down in Ockram in County Wicklow. Uh, you're both very welcome to the home show, uh, folks. Uh, Mark, let's start with you. A project in Belmullet. Now, you didn't pick an easy one here. You you set out to, to repurpose as a whole town. <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely, absolutely, Sinead. I suppose just giving an idea as to where the project as it came from. Um, a lot of architects moved back into their hometown with COVID. And I suppose that there's a real opportunity seen in that, that this unique skill set that wouldn't ordinarily have existed out in these far reaches is suddenly in amongst their community and interacting with their community. And at least I suppose that's, that's the story where I'm coming out here in, in the far reaches of northwest Mayo, a rural town in North Belmullet, mm. a planned 19th century town, um, but I suppose more than anything, a service town to a wider rural region and still very much serving that function. Um, although I suppose like so many Irish towns during the 20th century, just became car dominated. Mm. So those public spaces you're talking about, those town squares, you know, the waterfront, the, even the streets, you know, outside the, the front door of these shops, all of those spaces now are car dominated. And whereas I suppose what we're pushing forward is the idea that these should be people centric and people should be feel safe, comfortable, and they should be, uh, I suppose, the centre point of any design changes that are made within these environments. Mm. And of course, a lot of these towns uh, around Ireland, these market towns, were very, very well planned for a point in time. And and I suppose a lot of them would have been in the 19th century or the early 20th century. And they had, you know, a square or a plaza somewhere where horses and carts could come, goods could be dropped off. And, And do you find that, in fact, that was a really good design and we've choked it now? I, I, I think there was a definite logic into how these towns were, were built. I mean, just quoting an academic of the Irish uh, fields, Valerie Mulvin, you know, miles of dusty roads gathered in these spaces. You know, I mean, it's it, they really reached out those those roads and streets out from those town squares, reached out into the wider hinterland. They were those market spaces. So all the produce from the wider region came into that space. I suppose now there's a thing of identity and a possession part where, you know, the town is almost seen as to belong to the, the, the those building owners and the proprietors within the town. But really, these towns were built for the wider region, you know, as this, as a service zone for all mm. those facilities of that. And I suppose for people through this project, it's a, it's a matter of trying to 
bring that back into the minds of the people from across the region, that the town belongs to them. Mm. And they should engage within this conversation about how towns can best serve their community and engage with the architects that are on board this project. Now, the money that was supplied as part of this winning tender is €10,000, so it's not going to be enough to do work or construction or anything like that, but it's really to create a vision to allow planners maybe to look at what questions need to be asked around the particular project. So give me an idea of what you spent the money on, Mark. Uh, Absolutely. Well, the project is still in in full flow here in Belmont. Uh, I suppose what, what we're trying to do is exactly what we're talking about, that perception change about identifying the town as theirs, you know, that the community very much sees the town as theirs. So we opened it up in terms of conversation and started to bring life back to these streetscapes, back to these settings. So uh, reinterpreting artistic pieces that were within these spaces. There was a Jack B. Yates painting about boys throwing gravel up into the air along the waterfront. We reinterpreted that within a space which is now heavily dominated by traffic. It's a junction where the main residential area of the town is disconnected from the primary school and from the Nina within the town. We're talking about this being a public space and reconnecting it across so showing the public through an event how the space could be reimagined mm. and how they can interact with this waterfront space in a very different way. And so that was at one of our first events. Since then, I suppose we've integrated with the local festival, the Wallet Festival that happens here each August. And we, we took over, I suppose, a section of the town square within that and started to show people the importance of what the square was in the past, mm. showing them images of those markets, of those mass gatherings for public meetings and political rallies of the past, showing them that this was the living room of the wider region and that, you know, it really needs to pull back to that and even showing some sketch proposals as to how that could happen mm. and engaging that conversation and through surveys and workshops we're continually engaging in that conversation. Okay, well, let me turn now to Kate Strain. Uh, Kate, you had a fascinating uh, project you looked at down in Ockram, which was a sensory walk. Talk to me a little bit about what you were trying to achieve. Absolutely. I'm a curator. And for our project, we worked with the brilliant architect, Jenny O'Leary of House Architects. Um, But we developed a sensory walk, and that was something we wanted to do to try to get a feel for how somebody might experience Ockram without the use of vision as the kind of main or primary sense that we use when navigating the town. So we worked really closely with a brilliant choreographer called Aoife McAtamney with um, support from Cushcane Broadreach. And Aoife came to Ockram and did some kind of movement uh, research, let's say, did a kind of a recce. We walked through the town together with the architect and a local artist called Jackson Byrne. And we had a look at different spots in the town and how they might be um, used to explore the town through different senses. So we did things like uh, a blindfolded walkway where you had to um, totally trust a stranger and be led along the Sean Lennon Walk in Ockram, which is this beautiful briar-covered uh, little walking route. And something that happened there was a kind of incredible sense of how when, you're, um, when your usual senses are somehow distorted or skewed, Uh, you really have to kind of trust another person Mm. and you really have to trust your other senses. So things like what we felt underfoot or what we could smell as we walked along. And she did another gorgeous exercise where we gathered at a river, river that's very close to a bridge and a a kind of main intersection in Ockram. Um, And we focused on the river 
uh, and tried to tune in the river. And this actually helped us to tune out the noises of the traffic, which were so present. And then we looked away from the river and suddenly the traffic was back. The noise of the traffic was back. Mm. So it was a really amazing kind of sensory exercise in how we experience and interpret uh, and find our bodies within the townscape uh, in the gorgeous town of Ockram. Even things like touch. So we would touch the granite stone and, and Ockram is full of granite. It's called the Granite City. So we touch the granite stone and sort of understand uh, from the temperature of it where the sun was, what, what direction the sun was shining in or who had been there recently. Or um, we did another exercise with the architect and uh, different materials for handrails from like plastic to aluminium to wood, mm. sort of trying to understand access in as broad a way as possible through touch. And maybe and really uh, fascinating. And I suppose it's really re-engaging those senses apart from our eyes uh, yeah. that give us a sense of space and a sense of, of um, uh, solidity, I suppose. People can find out a little bit more uh, from the Irish Architecture Foundation.ie uh, or reimagineplace.ie, which are, which are the places to go. And it is a super initiative. And I think once lots of people locally hear about it, they will then start demanding of their councillors and other people that things are done a little bit differently. Uh, Mark Ruddy from the Hometown Architect team in Belmullet and Kate Strain. Uh, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. And you're very welcome back to the final part of the Home Show podcast. This week, I'm Sinead Ryan. And if you'd like to get in touch with us by email during the week, you can do so on uh, email at thehomeshow at newstalk.com. Well, I'm delighted to say my next guest is back in studio and comes with the added accessory this week of a broken leg home show regular. <laughs> Jennifer Sheehan, what happened to you? Never a day off. I fell down the stairs. Right. Was there, I'm, I'm inclined to go all Garda now and say, was there a drink involved? <laughs> Do you know what? I wish there was. I probably wouldn't have broken anything if there was. No, it was a mor- It was morning, about quarter past eight, last Friday week. Two weeks ago now, and I uh, was rushing for work. I had something, I was carrying something. I needed to walk the dog before I went to work and I was on the phone and I flew down the stairs and I just completely missed the last step and I went over my ankle and uh, I thought it was a sprain but it was not I, ouch, I broke it ouch I ouch did. so you're here now with the crutches I can here see the in crutches. the corner they're very very stylish not exactly. uh, and your moon boot which, are, which, which actually wearing. is quite stylish I'm okay. a fan of the boot I'm a fan of the boot so we thought actually no better opportunity we'd been planning to kind of cover this item at mm. some stage uh, between and uh, over the next few weeks. So who better to ask? <laughs> We're going to be discussing all things uh, to do with mobility aids and uh, accessories, you know, if you're unfortunate enough like Jenny to have broken her leg or indeed uh, a lot worse. And, um, you know, it is the home show where mm. uh, we're going to look at uh, help around the house, maybe for people who find getting around a little bit difficult or getting up a little mm. bit difficult uh, and you've been having a look because um, we asked you to go off in, when you were sitting on the sofa with nothing else to do <laughs> with your leg up <laughs> um, to try and see were there any options for people that as well as being functional and doing the job they're designed to do might also be a little bit stylish Yeah, and, and you came up short because I did this is hard. This is really hard. And, you know, easy for me to say all of two weeks on, on crutches, right? So, you know, it's it's one thing I really wanted to point out is that as I was looking for these things, there's so many solutions out there, which which is brilliant, right? There are just endless options for things that can help you get around. And that's wonderful because without crutches, 
I would be sitting on the couch and not in here, you know, so so they are wonderful things. But especially if you have them longer term, I was, you know, I, I looked online, I looked at lots of forums, I spoke to a few people that have mobility issues longer term um, in research for, for all of this. And everyone is so different. Of course, this is a unique solution for unique people. Some people want things that just blend into the background and aren't obtrusive at all. And I totally get that because even moving around on crutches, you know, the first thing you get is a pitying look and what happened and are you all right? And, you know, you're fine. You're fine. I just want to move around. Um, Whereas other people really want to express their style and they wanted to, you know, be a part of their accessories, a part of their outfit. And again, everyone's different. Um, But the range of what's available was quite limited, a little Mm. bit disappointing. Mm. And I suppose that's because the uh, engineers and the designers and the, uh, you know, the hospitals mm. and the HSE and all that, that design all this stuff and get it ready. I mean, they are not thinking, no. what colour combo do you want on your crutches? They're thinking, what range, what height, how yeah. can we make sure that you're safe and all of that. Uh, but as you say, for longer term yeah. uh, users of any mobility aids, I mean, what is the harm of having it blend in with your home aesthetic and mm. sometimes you see grab rails for instance yes. in houses and I know my my own parents uh, got them in over the years I mean they're pretty ugly Yeah and when you've worked so hard to make your house look nice you know wh- why shouldn't it look nice why shouldn't it blend in and of course all of these things are function over form yeah. right that's the important yeah. bit but of course it should look Okay right. well look let's start with the grab rails there did you find yeah. anything we have the kind of the my parents' house has the one with just white yeah. and, and they have a lovely mahogany banister, nice wallpaper and then this is all you can see. I found it really, really difficult to find nice grab rails. So the one that I did find was in Screwfix. So that is kind of a, you, you can buy as a uh, as a customer but it's mostly for trade. It's where a lot of builders and contractors would go to get their equipment and they actually had quite a nice variety of the finish that you could get your grab rail in and all up to standard, all up to safety spec, etc. But they had copper, they had an antique brass finish and I thought that was quite nice because mm. that does blend in mm. with some people's aesthetic and it could be, a, it could even be an addition, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be something that blends in. It could be a nice way to bring in some um, some metallics, uh, if 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 that's what you like the look of. I found one gorgeous one, not here in Ireland, in the UK, Sheffield Architectural Metalworkers. They manufacture these really beautiful kind of ornate, wrought iron ones. And I thought that looked really beautiful because it almost highlighted it and made it into a feature, which which is lovely because they're, you know, they can be really beautiful. Yeah. OK, well, I'm looking at your crutches here, but I presume you can get nicer ones than these uh, grey uh, yeah. metal ones that you've brought in. Yeah. So the Mobility Shop is based in Leash, uh, the themobilityshop.ie. They had uh, some uh, some nice uh, walkers. They had, you know, some more inobtrusive ones. That's really as far as I got in Ireland. If anyone knows of anyone, let me know. In the UK, though, I found a brilliant website and they do deliver to Ireland called cruelcrutches.ie. It's a UK mother and daughter. The daughter had a terrible quad bike accident when she was 19 and lost some of the mobility uh, from her from her thoracic spine down, uh, but has done a lot of rehab and is walking again and has these beautifully designed crutches, walking sticks. They're customizable. They have these gorgeous finishes and they've done a lot of work to make sure that the handles of the crutches are really comfortable, really ergonomic, because let me tell you now, those grey ones in the corner are absolutely not. <laughs> uh, and I know there are, because we have such a wonderful tradition of wood carving and, and um, yeah. you know, uh, 
native trees that we can use in wood. There's lots and lots of designers of crutches and walking yeah. sticks, um, walking sticks primarily um, around the country as well. And it's it's good to uh, to mention those as well. Yeah, okay. I'd love to hear from you if anyone <laughs> does manufacture them. I know it's difficult because yeah. of the safety standards and the quality standards, but it'd be great to hear yeah. if anyone. Okay, well that's five three one zero six. If you want to let us know or send in a picture, if you have a particularly nice walking stick, we'd love to see it uh, at the home show at newstalk.com or pop it up to me on Instagram uh, as well, and we'll take a look. Now, for those with longer term hmm. uh, or permanent lifelong um, mobility issues, like wheelchair users, yes, uh, the wheelchair. I've seen, I think maybe it was kind of, um, when you look at the Paralympians and they're just like, I mean, they're lying, breathtaking. But a lot of those sports wheelchairs are fascinating for me yeah. to look at with the wheels that go in inwards, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and obviously they're go faster wheels. I don't know. But um, but for kids and, and particularly wheelchairs that have to grow with the yeah. With the person. So there is a bit of style out there. Oh yeah, there is. So some of those are, I mean, wheelchairs are phenomenal. Like they're such incredible mobility devices. They're incredible for, for you know, getting you around the place where, where otherwise you wouldn't be able to. Uh, BMW actually designed one of those really <laughs> slick ones for Paralympians. And right. that's, you know, you can see images of that online. They're absolutely amazing. But there's an Irish company. They're an absolutely phenomenal company Izzy Wheels two sisters Alva and Izzy and they have one of the most innovative businesses they've just partnered with Disney I saw online Fair Play Teal Girls they have an an amazing amazing business so what they have done is they've designed customisable wheelchair covers for, for the wheels right so these are things you can design yourself they have paired with a range of designers they have gorgeous 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 stuff um and that allows you to customise and personalise your, your own wheelchair to express your own style. Oh, and they're brilliant. just brilliant. Go brilliant. check them out. Yeah, All right. Wonderful okay, company. that's uh, Izzy Wheels. Yeah. Uh, now, then, uh, in terms of other um, items, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking here maybe of uh, wearable um, yeah. disability devices. So you were looking at, at ostomy bags. Yeah, so I was looking at ostomy bags. So we had we had um, uh, colon cancer in our, in our family. So you know, some level of familiarity with stomas, etc. They're not uncommon at all. You know, plenty of people have them and they can be, of course, incredibly inobtrusive. You would never know. But there's also some really beautiful designs out there if if you don't feel you need to, to cover it up, if you don't want to cover it up. Uh, there's some great ones on Etsy. But I found a fabulous company, again, in the UK. UK are ahead of us here, right? So Irish designers, mm-hmm. this is a shout out to you. Um, UK are ahead of us called Ostique. So that's O-S-T-I-Q-U-E and they're ostique.co.uk and they have really, really beautiful designs for the bag that uh, that covers the, the ostomy bag um, that you know they're just stunning we're really happy to wear I those. came across on Instagram where else uh, says you and I presume on TikTok I don't have one of those accounts um, where there's lots of influencers who hmm. use um, ostomy bags yeah and uh, they have there seems to be a movement out there to kind of not hide it. Yeah. You know, go, you know, if you want to go on the beach or wear a bikini, you know, you can customise it and, and be kind of proud yeah. or, or um, at least highlight the fact, look, this is this is my disability. I don't need to hide it. Yeah. And it is what it is. And, I, you know, there's something very 
empowering about that yeah. for people who, who want to who want to do that absolutely and it's again it's not it's uncommon nice designers are kind of are catching up yeah. with all of that absolutely. Um, absolutely okay so anything else that you came across that you'd like to share oh the slings so I'm thinking of the slings <laughs> <laughs> who hasn't had a broken arm as a child well I have <laughs> <laughs> I have too so I didn't find anything wonderful for adults again if there is let us know I came across a great website called Kids Slings Irish website K-I-D-S S-L-I-N-G-S dot E that's a lot of S's they're in Sligo they manufacture uh, in Sligo as well and they have really fun designs for, for kids so if you have a little one with a broken arm who's feeling a bit down in the dumps uh, this could cheer them up because they're only gorgeous <laughs> Brilliant alright when do you hope to be out of the out of the crutches or uh, the hopefully boot? hopefully in the next couple of days and then I've got this pretty remarkable moon boot for the next four weeks Yeah alright okay yeah. It, it, you couldn't find a stylish one no. <laughs> and listen it's not bad Once again let ex- me know accessory your outfit around it isn't that the you thing to do, it, do you, know, you, you can go it? all goth and <laughs> black to go with it I will I'll sign it later on alright well Jennifer we are uh, grateful to you for coming hobbling in <laughs> to the studio today and thank you so much uh, for coming in and that is all we have time for on this latest episode of the Home Show podcast. We will get to do it all again next week. Thanks to Aoife Breen, uh, producer extraordinaire on the show this week and Stephen McLoon who was on sound. We will be back next episode uh, to do it all again and thank you for being with us this week. The Home Show with Sinead Ryan. Saturday morning at 8. With Daikin on News Talk.